This is Truth Encounter, and today we will be dealing with a difficult passage from Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 and following. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, uses an illustration from his pastorate to hint at what might be going on in God's divine commands to cut off the Canaanites. One of the young women in Dave's home church contracted leukemia, and the doctors advised that she have a bone marrow transplant. The treatment in this case seemed worse than the disease. I'll let Dave pick it up from here. I want you to think about Debbie's situation as we begin to think about the text in Deuteronomy 20. Just think about what they've done. They brought a young mother into the hospital and the medical doctors isolate. One of the things they do is they eventually begin to really isolate her from her family. And then they do a surgery so that they can put intravenous drugs into her veins very easily. But as I begin to think about those drugs, there are drugs that if you gave them to me, they'd wipe me out. In other words, they completely knock out the bone marrow system, the immunological system of the body. Now just think you don't know anything about this procedure and you begin to stack up these details. They begin to isolate this mother in a strange place, in this strange room. They begin to pump chemicals into her body that are going to completely knock out her ability to ward off disease. And then they start to do radiation. They put her on a table like, like, like on a slab and everyone else has to get out of there. And then they begin to radiate her body. Now I'm beginning to put all these things together. And I begin to watch her. She starts to be, you know, be weak, and she has to be even more isolated, and there's pain that's involved. In fact, as I talk to the people that are involved in doing this, they're saying that it's going to be a very, very serious and long and painful process. And so I'm tempted to want to run to that room and grab Debbie for Kevin's benefit and for, the, for uh, Philip and Devin's benefit. I want to grab a hold of Debbie and get her out of there. Do you understand that? You know, if I didn't understand that all that was involved and I just heard those facts, I would feel like we need to get a posse together this afternoon. We need to hit it for Baylor University and get in that Collins building. We need to rescue her. She's in serious trouble. Now, a lot of you say, well, Dave, that's ludicrous. The physician's hands are healing hands. And it might look to you like they're trying to destroy Debbie. In reality, they're trying to save her life. And I use that as an illustration because if we look at Deuteronomy 20, to be honest with you, if ever there was a problem in the Bible that I would be tempted to say, well, you know, maybe there's some portions of God's word that aren't quite God-breathed. Maybe there's some portions of God's word that we need to, um, we need to get the scissors and paste out a little bit. In fact, to be really honest with you, last time I was together with you and I was teaching you Deuteronomy 20, I got through the good part. I got through the announcement of the war and the priests going up and galvanizing the people and the, the pep talk and the officer sending everybody home that didn't want to fight. I talked about all the humanitarian things of, of soldiers that hadn't been married yet. They could go home and enjoy their wives. And I talked to you about you know men that hadn't enjoyed their vineyard yet and they could go home and enjoy their vineyard. But now we get to the difficult part. And to be really honest with you, I was thinking, well, maybe we can just jump, Lord, to chapter 21. They'll never know the difference. After all, I spoke a long time anyway, and the Lord did use that message. So I can just go on to chapter 21, and I can skip over the next couple sessions. I sat down with a group of men for breakfast on Monday, 
and I was going over this in my mind. They said, what are you going to do with the extermination of the Canaanites in the next few verses? I said, what are you going to do with the extermination of the Canaanites? And suddenly I realized I cannot just skip over it. I'm just going to really share with you from my heart, because one of the things that I want you to do as a believer is not just make God a figment of your own imagination, a nice, comfortable deity that in all honesty looks very much like a, a modern, genteel gentleman, but you'll never get to know the God of the Bible if you do that. You're not going to understand reality. You're not going to understand what life is all about. And the next few verses are very difficult verses. We introduced some of the difficulty the last time we were together because war is a difficult reality. What I want you to think about is I want you to begin to think about how fragile culture is, how fragile order is, how fragile celebration is, how fragile families are. Just a few years ago in Sarajevo, it was the centerpiece and the showcase of the world. And all the cameras of the world were focused on that city. And today, it's the bloodbath of war. That's the reality of the world that we live in. We have to ask ourselves as born-again believers, what does God's word say about this violence and this crisis of war and what happens? We're going back into the Old Testament where God was trying to carve out a nation for himself. He was trying to keep a people, a physical group of people, isolated from others so that they could, they could remain pure to their heritage and so that eventually, through that line of people, he would bring the Savior that would be able to save all the world. It's very important, as we begin to think about Deuteronomy today, that you begin to think in terms of that category. You've got a mass of humanity that are worshiping idols. You've got a mass of humanity that are worshiping frogs. They're worshiping snakes. They're worshiping falcons. They're worshiping fertility. They worship, uh, they worship bull calves. In their worship, as I've often explained to you, in their worship, they, they get involved in these very violent, very orgiistic kind of revelries, and, and there's no purity, there's no commitment to family values. And the Lord's trying to carve out a people that somehow won't be sucked in to this tremendous pull. It's like a gigantic worldwide magnet that's trying to pull the people in. The people he's trying to reach don't have a very good history either. These people, every time they come in contact with forces that are opposed to God, they get enamored with them. Even down in Egypt, before they were delivered, they became part of the idolatrous system. The Lord had to yank them out of Egypt just to give birth to the nation. Just before he gave them the Ten Commandments, while Moses was up on the mountain, these people formed a calf, carved out a calf, or made you know, out of molten metal a calf, and they, they're worshiping him in drunken, immoral revelry. And, and this is the kind of people God is dealing with. And the question that Moses is raising in Deuteronomy 20 is, how is God ever going to keep these people pure? And it's in the context of that flow of the story of the Bible that we have raised probably one of the most serious ethical questions of the Old Testament. How could a good and loving God ever tell the Israelites that they needed to go in and defeat their enemies, and specifically the people that dwell in their land, the land that God gave to them, how could God ever tell them, you need to exterminate these cities? You need to just kill everything that's living there. That's a hard one. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 20. 
We'll pick it up in, uh, as Moses begins to share with them. First of all, in verse 10, Moses first of all begins to talk about an attack against enemies that are outside the boundaries of God's promised land to the nation of Israel. To give us a concrete example of what Moses is picturing in this case, it would be like the Amalekites. The Amalekites lived down to the south on the way to Egypt. They lived in an area that was not designated by being part of the promised land. And the Lord says that you need to deal with that people. We're going to find out they're a very special group, and we'll look at that in just a minute. Or in the campaigns of King David, King David would go up across the Jordan River into what's called Transjordan, and he would attack Ammon because the, the people living in Ammon would come over and raid his nation and destroy his people. And so David would send his armies across the Jordan River under General Joab. In fact, that's when he got in trouble. Joab was up there fighting, and David stayed home and wasn't fighting the enemies of the Lord. So we first of all begin, and I give you some historical background so you'll know the specific concrete details of what Moses is talking about. He first of all focuses the attention of the army on people that are living outside the boundaries of the land that God promised them. And these are enemies that have attacked Israel, have threatened Israel's security. In order for a nation to maintain its existence in the world, it must, must defend its boundaries. We often don't think about that. But if you're a military person, you have committed your life to that. You understand that in order for a nation to exist in the world, it must protect its people. And that's the kind of a scenario that Moses, first of all, dealed with. Let's look at it in verse 10. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. So when you have an enemy that's outside your boundaries and the armies of Israel march forth and they come up into a city and you can envision ancient warfare, it says that the whole process of siege, the whole process of attack, needs to begin with an offer of peace. In the ancient world, that's a very humanitarian gesture because many of the armies of the ancient world would just mow down a city and burn it haphazardly and there would be no offer of peace. It would just be total destruction without any ifs, ends, and buts about it. And the Lord is, is, is putting, a, is putting a, a barrier. He's making it so that the armies of Israel would not enter into that kind of barbarity. He says, when you go out and fight, the first thing you need to do is make an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates. All the people in it shall be subjected to forced labor and shall work for you. In other words, that might sound horrible at first, but in the ancient world, if you were living in one of these cities and the armies of Israel came against you and they gave you an ultimatum that you can surrender and then we'll let you all live, but if you don't, it's going to be very serious. This was a very humane and generous thing. In fact, we have an example of a group of people that were, were tangled up in this kind of an affair with Israel that we'll look at in just a minute called the Gibeonites. And they really didn't come under this gracious provision of God, but by a very shrewd and cunning plan, they were able to enter into it. Now look what happened if the people refused to obey. If they refused to make peace and they engage in battle, lay siege to the city, and when the Lord your God delivers into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, and the livestock, everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves, and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you're to treat 
all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Now, if you'll turn over to the book of Joshua, it's always good to let the scripture itself interpret what's going on. So if you turn to Joshua chapter 9, we have a very intriguing story. You see, after Joshua defeated the city of Jericho, which was one of the major cities among the Canaanite cities, then they had a victory at Ai after a temporary setback. All of the Canaanites began to get together in council, and they began to decide, what are we going to do about this horrible attack that's coming in? What about the scourge of the land? And most of them decided, a whole coalition of kings in the south and a whole coalition of kings in the north decided, we're going to fight it out with Israel. And the story of Joshua is how the Lord, through the power of the Israelite army and through his power working through it, defeated the armies of the south and then turned north. And they defeated the, defeated the city of Hatzor, which was a city that had walls that at the base of their walls were 100 feet thick. The city of Hatzor covered 175 acres. It was, it was the powerhouse of the north. And in, this, in the history of Joshua... Through the power of God, they're able to win a great victory against that city. Now, in the midst of all of these Canaanites that have decided, we're going to harden our hearts, we're not going to submit, we're going we're to fight it out with Israel, and they face the wrath of Almighty God, there's a little group of people called the Gibeonites that decide they don't want any part of this fighting against the Lord God of Israel. They had heard about the deliverance through the Red Sea. They heard about the walls of the, of the sea being raised up, and they heard about the, the cream of Pharaoh's army being destroyed. And just like Rahab and Jericho, the Gibeonites decided we need to come up with a plan to exist. So what did they do? They're very smart. And you're going to find throughout the Word of God that the Lord God does respond to those who act in wisdom. Throughout the ancient Near East, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes are all evidence of this wisdom school that looks at life, thinks practically, comes up with a plan. What the Gibeonites did is they took some of the best actors in their group. This is the beginning of Hollywood. No, not really. They get them all decked out. I mean, they put the, the women, I'm sure, were involved in this because the men would have blown the plan from the start. But the women decked these guys out in, in all these old clothes, these crusty old clothes that just smell like they've been marching for, for days on end, like they've been out in the trail. They're covered with dirt, they're ripped, they're torn. And some of the men grabbed some fresh bread because the men weren't thinking, but some of the women said, that's not going to work. So they, they got some old, crusty, moldy bread. So the Gibeonites come into the camp of Joshua at Gilgal. And they come in and they look like they've been marching and, and have been traveling for weeks on end. And they come to General Joshua and say, we are a people that live far away. And we have come to make peace with you. And, they, and they, they're very cunning. They, they mention the pride of Israel. We have heard of your great victories in, on, over the Pharaoh in Egypt. And we've heard about what you did to, to Og and the king of Sion and, and all these great military victories that you've, that you've made. They didn't mention the, pre, the, the, the immediate victories because remember they came on a long journey. They wouldn't know about what Israel had just done. Joshua gets together with the leading elders of Israel. All the men of Israel get together. They look at this. And one of the men raised his hand and says, boy, did you see the bread that they have? Boy, they showed us this bread. It's moldy. These guys have been out on the trail for months on end. They must live hundreds of miles from here. They must be from way over there by the Euphrates River. And so they enter into a covenant of peace with them. Joshua signed in the dotted line, we will not destroy you. 
Well, then in three days' time, it turned out the whole thing was a ruse. These guys lived right in the land of Canaan. They were part of the Canaanites. They were under the destructive ban of God. And so that all the men of war say, we need to destroy these people, Joshua. We need to wipe them out. Joshua says, we can't. We gave our word. We signed in the dotted line. In Israel, your word means something. If you enter into a covenant, if you enter into an agreement, it means something. And so Joshua says, we cannot destroy them. Instead, we will make them carry the water. We'll make them do the hard work in the camp. And then Joshua mentions that the Gibeonites are the water carriers and the wood choppers, even till this day. And so that's the Gibeonites. In reality, therefore, the Gibeonites slowly but surely began to be amalgamated into the people of God. They became part of the covenant community, part of the blessing that God would bring upon his people. And there's a specific illustration of exactly what Moses was talking about. When an enemy comes, you first of all, if they're outside your boundaries, you give them an offer of peace. If they won't respond, then you remember that war is war. And you remember that if if, if, if a people makes the decision that we're going to fight and we're not going to give in to peaceful measures, then you don't hesitate. And you realize that war is violent and destructive, and someone that realizes that is able to deal with it quickly and decisively and with courage and boldness, and it's not like cutting off a dog's tail one little bit at a time. It's very important for our nation to begin to think about this, because we live in a a time period right now where a lot of people don't understand these realities of real life. And so we, we, we go halfway into things and halfway out. And God in the Old Testament gave his people a very wise counsel. He said, you don't create enemies. You're not like the imperialistic Babylonians or the imperialism of the Pharaoh of Egypt that goes out against enemies and will just destroy people. But if an enemy attacks you, And then you go forth to conquer their city. You give them an ultimatum of peace. If they submit to you, then they become your vassal. They become your servants under the old covenant laws, like the Gibeonites. If they refuse, then you go in and you deal with them. And with the people outside of the land of Canaan, they were able to take the women and children into the household of Israel and let them become part of the household of faith. Part of the reason for that is we have an ancient tradition. In fact, we need to look at one other tradition that's right here in the next chapter, and we'll go ahead and pick it up now. In chapter 21, if you look down at verse 10, we have another little insight into this warfare with enemies from beyond, from outside the boundaries of Canaan. When you go to war, verse 10 of chapter 21, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives... If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her and you take, and take her as your wife, bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And if you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. This is one of those passages that probably no one ever talks about. I'm sure, how many of you have heard Sunday morning messages on this passage, right? That's, what, that's the danger of being a Bible teacher. You just can't get away from these things. 
And uh, we love to wax eloquent on the passages that make real neat sense. And this is one of those. Uh, it cuts right in the face of modern feminism. Uh, it cuts right in the face of, of how could God ever allow a woman, if she was married to a man, how could God ever say if he doesn't like her, you know, if she's displeased with her, that he can let her go? And it introduces us to a very important insight that you need to realize about God. God enters into the messiness of where you live. That's what God is doing right here. God is entering into the messiness of these ancient people. We must be very careful not to just read our understanding in light of all the progression of Revelation and how much more teaching we have in the fullness of Christ. It's very important for us not to just jump to conclusion and say, we, you know, let's judge these people. It's very easy to judge these people from outside the boundaries of their cultural setting. Let me give you a background of what would happen in the ancient Near East. Like if you were an Assyrian and an Assyrian army attacked a, a people, the men would just ravish the women. They just ravish the women, rape them, brutally use them, and then just shoot them. And not shoot them, but they would spear them. And, and it was just total destruction, total violence. What God is really doing in this path is that you're not allowed to do that. One of the things you notice, and we're going to, and as we get further into Deuteronomy, one of the things that should begin to build on you is this book takes animals seriously. It takes people seriously. It takes possessions seriously. It doesn't let you just go into chaotic nothingness where, where violence can just totally reign. There's always controls on it. What the Lord is saying to the, to the armies of Israel, soldiers throughout the ancient Near East, will just go in and just use women. He said, you're not allowed to do that. If there's a woman that catches your eye as you go in and you fall in love with her, like, like Shechem earlier in the book of Genesis fell in love with the Israelite girl named Dinah, what God says if that happens, then you're to, you can take her as your wife. And I want to talk to you about some of the things that God said that I just read to you. Number one, God says you need to realize the tremendous separation that's taking place in her life. You can't just take a woman out of her milieu, out of her setting in life, after her, probably her parents and people have been killed, and just bring her into your life and think that everything will just be fine. There has to be transition. And the idea is you need to move her from being like a prisoner of war, like when, it, when someone wins a great battle, even in World War II, like when the armies of the Americans came in, the people would feel like slaves. They even had slave clothes on. And one of the first steps is to break from that life, that you're not going to be a slave, you're not going to be a prisoner. You can enter into a relationship with me on an equal basis. And that was the idea of the clothes and the trimming the nails and cutting the hair. Those were symbols of mourning. And then there were also symbols of breaking from the old way of life. For example, in Jewish vows, Saul took a Jewish vow where he grew his hair long and then he cut it. And then he would offer that to the Lord. It was a symbol in their culture of a new day in your life, of a new commitment in your life, of a new vow. And all that's involved in the very intricate thing that, that the Lord tells these men and the women that they're attracted to what they need to do. Then he says this, you need to give her a full month, which was a time of great honor. To mourn for somebody for a full month was to give great honor to them. For example, Israel mourned over Moses for that full period of time, 30 days and longer at times. I want you to think about in our culture. We tend to, to just kind of move through transitions. If you're not involved in someone's death, like for example, if there's a husband that loses his wife, if you're not involved in it, your attitude is very much, we just move on and, you know, I go by a different church and, well, I'm not involved in that because we're so unconnected. 
It's a very serious problem right now in our culture. We're rapidly moving more and more towards no connectedness. We don't believe in really mourning. We, we try to ignore it. As a church family, it's so important not to do that. And when people have a, have a sledgehammer that really hurts them, you continue to, to be there and, and to realize it takes time. And I want all of you to realize you don't just get over a great crisis that takes place in your life. You snap your fingers, the next day everything's fine. In reality, it goes on for years. Change is hard. Endings are hard. But I want to share with you something else. There can also be new beginnings. There can be new relationships. In fact, just in my own life, as I was thinking about this passage, I remember when my mom went home to be with the Lord. All of my life, you know, from the time I was a baby, obviously, my mom had always been there. She was always married to my dad. My dad went out on a, it was on a New Year's Day. They partied on New Year's Eve in a holy sense. They had a good time with some friends. On New Year's Day, because my mother loved to party, they partied again. They went to three different homes. They went to go to another home late on New Year's Day Eve. And my, my mom told my dad as she was on his arm, I don't feel well. She slumped. He put her in the seat. By the time my dad got around, she was gone. They rushed her to the hospital, but she was gone. When Mary and I got up there, my dad was in the ozone layer. My dad is a great, powerful leader. And my dad really can hold organizations together. If he preaches to you, he can be powerfully used by the Holy Spirit to bring you to the kingdom of God. But just to share with you really honestly, in major personal crises, he goes into the ozone layer for about a week. He's paralyzed. Like when Dawson Trotman, the founder of Navigator, is drowned. My dad was driving the boat. And I was just a little boy back in the 50s when it happened. My dad drove the boat, and, and a girl fell off the edge, and Dawson Trotman dove in after her. My dad whipped the speedboat around, as I've shared with you. But any of you that do any water skiing know that there's a time element. You can't, especially those older speedboats. You can't just whip a boat around and get back uh, just like that. It takes seconds. It takes time. When my dad got back, the girl that she really turned out, she was an excellent swimmer. She had a hold of Dawson's hair, and then she let it slip. And Dawson went right to the bottom of Strune Lake, deeper than 200 feet. And he was gone. And I remember the little boy. I don't remember much about it, but I remember my dad being totally paralyzed. I remember wondering a little boy, why can't I see my dad? Why doesn't my dad respond? He was all alone in a room and he just stayed there for about a week because that's when my dad responds to crisis. And that's what my dad did with my, when my mom died. Lila Trotman, Dawson's widow, went in and told my dad after he was really mourning, said, you know, Jack, you were with Dawson many times when the two of you could have been killed. And she looked at my dad and says, you know, I hurt and I'm in pain, but I want you to know something. Don't you think the Lord God of the universe could have got you back a few seconds earlier? And she loved my dad in a, in, in a holy way and, and hugged him. And, and just like that, my dad snapped out of it and went right on with his life. And my dad hardly ever talks about that whole event. That's the way my dad is. My dad did that with my mom's death. He really needed us for about a week. My brother and I, I'm kind of the leader of our family. Don and I kind of control things and got this service set up, and we did it. And really, to be honest with you, about six months, I remember my dad came down and visited us here, and it was one of the closest times we've ever had at a family. Really a close time. Because my dad really needed us. He was really dependent upon us in many ways. But then I started to hear rumblings. My sister Betsy was really angry because my dad had disappeared. 
Suddenly, you know, my dad gives you a schedule where you're going to be every second preaching so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Suddenly, he wasn't at where his schedule said. And my sister hit the fan. She thought he died or he had a stroke or he had a heart attack. He hadn't had a heart attack. He had a heart problem. He fell in love. He had gone to Bermuda and met this girl in Bermuda, not really a girl, but a woman in Bermuda, and he was in the center of this country in Kansas, down there courting her. And boy, did my sisters get mad. Did Mary get mad? Did my older sister get mad? Man, I had them on my neck. You need to find some place in the Bible that says, thou shalt not remarry. <laughs> and my dad called me on the phone and says, you're the pastor. And show him it's okay <laughs> to remarry. What I want you to realize, those transitions in life are not easy. Really, they're not easy. I remember my brother and I went up, I was speaking at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we were, after the meeting, we were meeting with a whole bunch of elders and their wives. And one of the guys was an older guy. And he came up to my brother and I and Don and I and said, you guys are really upset. Your whole family's really upset about this. Because, man, it was fast. I mean, my dad changed like that, and he was going to enter in. In fact, we were really upset because he went in. It seemed to us he was going in and out of several different relationships. He was acting like a teenager again. That's hard when your dad acts like a teenager. This old man said, have you ever been 70? I said, no, I haven't. He said, don't you make judgments about someone that's 70 when you're not 70 yourself. And he said, you all better think. It might just be, there's nothing in God's word. In fact, Romans 7 makes it very clear that when a marriage ends on this life, the person is home with the Lord or they know Christ and they enter an existence that's going to be better than anything we could ever imagine. But their life on earth has ended till death do its part. We're not Mormons. We're not populating the, the eternal kingdom with, with babies made from eternal marriages forever. That's Mormon thinking but the Bible is very clear that if a marriage ends, then there can be a new relationship. And it's not immoral. Even though my emotions were saying, Dad, you're immoral. How could you ever even look at another woman besides my mother? Those are very deep feelings inside. But I want every one of you to realize that the Bible is telling you about existence. Life on this earth does go on. And Deuteronomy is telling you that the Lord God of heaven cares about you. And he tells you, in this case, this woman's life goes on. Even after the devastation of battle and, and terrible cataclysmic change in her life, there could be a new relationship. She could join with one of these Israelites and become part of the chosen people. And God tells us about that. He said, you need to realize that life does go on and life changes. And one of the things you have to do if you're going to live life skillfully is you're going to have to flow with that change. Be sure to join us next time as Dave continues to complete our discussion about what in the world God was saying as he talks about the case of a captive woman in Deuteronomy 21.